This is your pal Daffy Duck, and you're watching. You're watching. We're watching. You're watching Fanboy. 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 Fanboy, etc. Fanboy Nation. Dot, I assume Tom. This morning, I am speaking with Dean Mark Towner, who is at the Endicott College School of Visual and Performing Arts, and we will be talking about the impact of this global pandemic that we've been suffering through 2020 and its effects on performing arts and what will come after these uh, stay-at-home orders have lifted. Dean, how are you today? I'm doing excellent. Thank you. How about yourself? I am fantastic. The year is almost over. Uh, quite a few people had a tumultuous 2020. Uh, I tried to look on the bright side in certain instances, and it was wonderful for me because it was great towards my wallet. Excellent. You know, I think I only filled yes. up the car like six times the entire year. Well, um, and being from L.A. or that, that uh, California, I know that can be um, quite an advantage. Yes, especially with our gas taxes and how many miles we put on the cars. But uh, you over on the East Coast have a different situation. You guys are a bit more public transit orientated. So that has a completely different effect on you guys. Um but let's go through everything that's going on now. I mean, 2020 definitely killed performing arts uh, for an audience. Um, what you know? Take us through what happened essentially to artists and performing artists in 2020. Okay. Well, I'm going to preface by saying that Endicott College uh, took a lead and a little bit of a risk by going to all classes in person on campus when many of the colleges in New England decided to deliver remotely. So for the seminar and lecture classes, that's not so hard. For the performing arts and some of the visual arts, it presented a challenge. Fortunately, we rose to the challenge. We have an exceptional team of uh, faculty and students. So there are, there are different technologies we picked up and different strategies uh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna start by saying that after the sem completion of the semester, the cases of COVID are less on campus with no outbreaks in the performing or visual arts at all. So our strategies were extremely successful and we learned them from, from professionals in the field, from HVAC specialists. Uh, we attended, uh, engineering sessions from videographers and filmmakers and and such. And so, we're, I'm sorry. Yeah, go ahead. No, I was going to say, and congratulations for all of that, that you took these precautions. We took the precautions, the social distancing of um, maximum, uh, I mean, minimum six feet between each student or um, professor student. No uh, meetings in our offices, all of our meetings, whether with students or faculty, were uh, in Zoom. And as many of our courses could or classes could be held outside were, we, um, which is a challenge here in New England, um, but with the use of outdoor facilities and tents, we were able to keep uh, all of our classes in music, theater, dance, and the visual arts uh, active the whole, the whole semester. I know you can't speak on the other programs outside of, outside of the arts department, but 
you know, the other lab courses, say for biology and chemistry and things of that sort, uh, were they able to overcome the same obstacles that you guys were? Because lab is completely different than lecture, as, as you've mentioned in your own uh, yeah. performance uh, schools. That's a really good observation, and uh, I do sit on a dean's council, so a lot of the strategizing college-wide was done between us deans. And uh, in nursing, with the uh, the clinicals and with science, with the chemistry and the labs, uh, those were those were major obstacles. They too overcame them by a, a variety of strategies, including uh, individual individualized um, uh, kits, student kits for them to take home for remote delivery of content, um, working with mannequins, etc. So. I'm not saying that they all were as successful as in the arts, only because I don't have knowledge of the details. But at the end of the semester, the students and the faculty uh, chimed in by way of surveys, and we did find that um, we were college-wide quite a success. Well, that's fantastic, and I'm so glad to hear that. And it was a little bit of a gamble. I mean, I'm not speaking on behalf of administration, but what if suddenly there was a big outbreak on campus? Then um, we would not be feeling so good. But um, one of the things that I wanted to uh, share at some point is we immediately picked up videography, filmmaking, and audio techniques to develop different strategies for both uh, remote delivery and hybrid delivery and social distance delivery. That was probably our single largest um, technique was to embrace other technologies that we don't usually use, let's say in a ceramics class or in a dance class. So we had a crash course in filmmaking. Well, that, that makes a lot of sense. I know soap operas were doing something similar where, you know, their, ro- their romance scenes was that they'd put their partner in a wig and then, uh, you know, have the kissing scenes with, with their spouse or, or their significant <laughs> other in the house yeah. and just film it from the back of their head in different angles and then splice it together. So everyone has oh, to learn yeah, that's a new tricks. <laughs> yeah, I like that one. I'm not going to use that at our college, but I love it. <laughs> um you know, we've kind of reinvented pay-per-view in in 2020 where, you know, you can watch this live college or, or I'm sorry, you can watch this live uh, concert or this live play or this musical or whatever for a minimal fee of XYZ depending on the level of performance, whether it was a high school performance all the way up to, you know, say the Rolling Stones were performing, for example, um, you know. Uh, how has that affected the live performances? Because with uh, theater arts, it's very much an instant gratification of receiving applause or gasps or cheers or, you know, people sobbing in the audience, um, you know, while you're performing. And now there's this delayed reaction similar to film and television where you have to wait to get the social media aspect of it and go, oh, did we do well or were we atrocious? Well, I think you're right on by by pointing out that what I would say is that there was a major loss by that uh, human interaction, you know, looking at someone's eyes going back and forth or the immediate applause. Big loss. However, there was a gain 
uh, and that is that at the end of each of our performances, the audience could partake in question and answer and commentary with the entire staff, with the entire cast, with the, with the whole choral ensemble. And that's an opportunity that does not usually take place. So although it doesn't replace the, the liveness and the immediacy, it, um, by having this democratic um, media of Zoom land and live interaction, everybody got a chance to interact with anyone. So it, um, and the other benefit, I hate to be an optimist, but um, there were some really good upsides to this. Another benefit was that our audience actually expanded. Mm-hmm. I figured as much. I'm so the next question. Yeah. So, yeah. Okay. Well, being a college, mm-hmm. uh, um, we are New England based, but we do have students from around the country. Their families cannot usually attend events in New England. So with the Zoom and the access, actually our attendance went way up. And this was not only for everything from chamber ensemble to um, our main stage theater productions, but also for gallery artists on the visual arts end of the spectrum to give a talk and suddenly there was a hundred people in a gallery talk, whereas in the past there might have been 20 or 30 was, um, was, a, was a good benefit. Right. And then there's the aspect of grandma who lives in Arkansas that can't travel because of her age and because of the, the restrictions for, for the health concerns can now be tapped in through zoom. You know, someone set it up for her if she, if she's not computer literate and she gets to watch her grandchild give this lecture. Uh, at your college in New England. That's right. So, um, uh, again, to reiterate your point, um, the, the live interaction was sorely missed. But the upside was is that there was far more interaction between staff and, uh, and actors and backstage with um, with families from Arkansas, California, and Minnesota. It, it was a big difference. And does that also bring There's, alumni that have moved overseas? Like, you know, someone graduated and then ended up in a, a theater in New Zealand that decided to, you know, catch an alumni show or something and, you know, decide to, to, uh, to tune in. Well, uh, um, I don't know if it was New Zealand, but I will say that with one of our faculty exhibitions, we did have um, a faculty exhibition where she gave a live a gallery talk and then questioned and answer period, that there were alumni and her family and friends from around the country. Again, I don't know if they were from, from Europe or overseas or Southeast Asia, but um, bringing alumni back into the fold was a big part of this. Well, that's fantastic. Like, I picked New and, Zealand just because I thought it was the furthest place from New England that we could, yeah. uh, we could pick on. Well, can I can – I, Take that thread and, and just comment on an international experience that did occur. Please do. Okay. So with our dance ensemble and our dance courses, uh, including composition, one of our students was studying in Italy, in Florence, and yet she was an active dancer. Because we were set up to do remote and hybrid delivery as well as in person, she was able to participate in composition um, from Florence. And uh, her final production was aired along with the other students who were here in Massachusetts by uh, 
by recording by her own videos. And it was actually a wonderful experience because here she was in um, a beautiful walkway of a, of a Florentine palace to do her interactions with the architecture. How horrible to be in Florence with such gorgeous architecture to be doing the <laughs> final project. Yeah. yeah. Although we're making light of it because Italy was hit pretty hard early on. So our, our condolences to everybody that we lost in Italy. But, you know, we're trying to make light of things. Again, being optimistic. Um, right. <clears throat> there's this weird notion that as soon as it hits midnight, January 1st, 2020, the veil will be lifted. You know, it'll be like Easter, essentially. You know, the veil was torn in the temple. And then, you know, we knew that the Christ was, was our savior for sure. And all is well with the world. And now there's this secular notion that I'm tying, I'm trying to tie it into that the veil will be lifted okay. at midnight. And then all of a sudden, miraculously, the virus is cured. We're all going to go back to the theater and stand up comedy and musicals and whatever else. What's the reality? from what you see as a university to people returning to live performances in 2021? Cause it's, you know, there's the fantasy of January 1st and then there's the actual reality of sometimes say May or June. Okay. So there's a part A and B response to this. Part A is we're fully prepared to have host all of our students on campus and to have our courses and our productions. We will not be having live audience unless it's limited to a couple of dozen in a per theater. So our strategy, once that veil is unlifted, is to go ahead with social distancing and with the safety strategies that were so successful last semester. We do anticipate that there will be uh, eventually the herd effect and that we're no longer going to be susceptible as a society um, once the vaccines really kick in. However, we've learned so much through this pandemic about uh, the use of technology and alternative strategies that, honestly, in the performing arts, and I would say in the visual arts too, things are going to be different forever in a good way. Right. So once we do return to full live audience, they will be recorded. There will be follow-up question and answers in that incorporate Zoom land so that, again, the families and the alumni from around the country or the world can participate. Um, what does that do to the program, and how does the program get revamped? So what we're doing is, um, all right, well, when, when last March hit, we really had to cancel uh, our exhibitions and many of our performances. We had scheduled Legally Blonde with actually a major actress from one of the uh, Hollywood productions um, to participate in an auxiliary way. We had to cancel all of that. By fall, we had developed, over the summer, we had developed a strategy to uh, do some presentations, but it was still at a limited number compared to pre-pandemic. For next spring and next fall, we're up to about 95% of our productions, which is about 45 productions a semester. So we're gearing up. We're going to go remote. We're going to go video delivery. When the time comes, um, we're, we're going to hold on to those, to those technologies. So that, uh, and I'm going to give you a couple of examples, if you don't mind. No, please. If, if, 
if we're filming every uh, chamber ensemble and every dance uh, ensemble, et cetera, if we're filming those, those become part of a permanent archive. And family, friends, alumni, and even prospective students and family, they'll have access to our productions, and that's an incredible benefit. Same thing with exhibitions. I have uh, oversee three galleries. We're uh, beginning this winter. We're up to about ninety-five percent of the exhibits that we would have scheduled before. They will now be not only in person by appointment only. They will also be. Uh, online virtual galleries, and then any artist talk will also be uh, filmed and recorded. So what we're finding is that the artists themselves, and this goes for uh, from live comedians to visual artists, the added benefit of having their production filmed and archived is is real to them. You know, there's not always a lot of uh, financial gain when you're an exhibiting or performing artist. Right. And, and having some other uh, professional documentation, you know, part of their reel or part of their uh, portfolio is, is, is really important. So now the artists are clamoring um, to participate, even if the live audience is only a fraction of what it was. And now you get to work with the film and television department in producing this the live events department and, and recording it. So those students get a reel of saying, see how I shot this, see how I edited this, uh, see how we, exactly. you know, I played with the sound and got the sound quality to be balanced, et cetera, et cetera. Exactly. Uh, so this was a huge collaborative um, collaboration because here we are in the performing arts. We're wanting to have uh, professional productions. And what we did was we went to our, uh, the film department, which is part of the, a different school on campus. But the, uh, the students and faculty of the School of Communication jumped on it because suddenly from artificial assignments uh, into like this is a real event and uh, we need to know, we need to learn and then capture it professionally. It was a great learning opportunity for the film and actually photography students too. Uh, at Endicott, our photography program is very multimedia centric. Uh, meaning that they do learn high-end videography techniques and high-end audio. So essentially it's not just the performing arts department. It's been this entire collaboration across the university. Correct. Um, and I'm sorry, go ahead. Well, I mean, I'm, I've got just so many ideas. I, I don't want to interrupt. But uh, another benefit is that uh, performers... And, and the presenters and lecturers from around the country were willing to participate, whereas in the past, if it involved one or two days travel, uh, a major stipend, the um, you know that might not have happened. So I was able to get presenters, let's say from the Guggenheim Museum in New York, um, to be a part of my arts administration series as well as directors of other museums and the Met, uh, I mean, the um, the Boston Lyric Opera, the Boston Ballet. So picking up the, the, the uh, documentation has just been an incredible opportunity. Um, early on during the pandemic, I had interviewed quite a few stand-up comedians because I was interested right. in how they were going to be able to perform because – I, I thought that the Zoom performances would kill 
the comedian's career that does crowd work. You know, oh, where are you from? Or are you guys on a date? You know, you know those those comics. Um, so, yeah, and, <laughs> I know what you mean. Right. And, you know, I, I sometimes enjoy the comics that do crowd work, and sometimes I sit there and go, wow, this is getting annoying. But there was also the aspect of leaving everybody's mic live because you want to hear the reaction to your jokes. And then you'd hear things like, you know, a dog barking, someone's kid crying. Hey, <laughs> yeah, right. I, since you're not, can you give me a soda? You know, those, those sort of things that kind of interrupted the show. How have you found the balance of keeping the mics live in the audience while they perform to get those reactions? And when do you, you know, when did you figure out to turn off the mics and then turn them back on? You know, and is there a moment where it's crushing that this is the big reveal, for example, from a play and it's the end of the act and you turn the mics on expecting everybody to clap as they would in person and it's, crickets or hey get me another soda you know hey yeah, right, did, right. did the pizza guy show up yet that sort of thing well i don't have any magic solution for that uh we did have a a, a night of comedy that was um uh broadcast nationally and the um uh the uh the, the host was um the comedian bethany van delft and so the way that we the way that she handled it with our technicians was to have a few people in zoom land with their audio on and they could laugh and clap mm -hmm. but 95 percent well the audience could not so at least the uh, comedians had some form of like yeah people got it and it was also and it wasn't canned laughter but it reminded me of the canned laughter from a lot of the sitcoms um you know where you know, the, at just the right moment, everybody laughs. But this was authentic. And so when you have uh, the, the technicians and the other comedians in the audience, they really got it. The other thing I'd say is that, uh, as you know, stand-up uh, performers are so adept at picking up contemporary themes that they really had the pandemic down. And, um, you know, and what it was like to be, captivated in their own house with their own lover or partner and like, Oh my God, I'm going crazy. Uh, we had, they had a really great time with it. Well, now, you know, uh, some of them maybe, you know, if they're on zoom and they're just sitting too, too comfortable back in their, uh, in their couch and they're like, look like a potato, then, then it doesn't work. But the, but most of them were really just totally on it. Yeah. Yeah. Cause that just seemed that that was the early on, question of how it would work like over here in southern california uh, a couple of the comedy clubs did drive-through stand-up and it was the notion wow. of me sitting in my car you know listening out the window to somebody telling me jokes that i just thought was you know uncomfortable um right you know i'd want to be a part so of now of course and now we can uh, now that the scene that you just uh, illustrated there now that could be of a comedic that could be a comedic sketch um, that other people could play upon. How like at first we were so inept at, at perform at presenting and and even participating as an audience. Now we can make fun of it. 
Yeah. I, I mean, I'm hoping we can. Now, the, you know, the industry is suffering. I don't mean to make, or the industries, they're, they're totally suffering. I don't mean to make light of it. Um, and a lot of the strategies that we were able to do at Endicott uh, do not apply to um, larger productions and, and productions that are actually are required to generate revenue. See, I'm in that uh, I'm in that fortunate position where uh, our productions, although they may be some some uh, audience fees involved, for the most part are underwritten by grants or by the college. So, and that's not how it is in the real world. No, uh, it reminds me of a line in the movie Ghostbusters where. Um, Ray is talking to Vankman and he said, have you ever worked in the private sector? You know, um, it, it's horrifying. They, they expect results. So, you know, when I hear, <laughs> when I hear the grant thing, you know, I'm paraphrasing because I, my delivery is nowhere near as good well, as, uh, no, it as <laughs> yeah. Um, on the academic level though, for the students that, you know, cause there's theory and then there's performance. So let's let's go through the year one student that's going through the theory class versus the year three student that is now going through the performance class. Uh, what were the challenges in pivoting uh, lecture versus performance for the students? Well, the the challenge. Well, I'll get to the challenge, but it's totally exacerbated by the fact that some students are in classroom on campus, while other students, for health reasons, are off campus and they're being delivered to remotely. So this it's really um, makes it difficult for a professor to, let's say, start off, let's say, in the beginning intro class and maybe it's an um, introduction to theater or uh, intro to acting where there is some theory, but also you're going to want to be doing some demonstrations, the professor herself uh, or the students doing trying different techniques. How do you illustrate this? Whether it be for freshmen or juniors, the way to illustrate it is not like in person, but it does involve um, setting up cameras, setting up lighting and audio for the person at home, and then doing it in front of a live audience, which is your class. So, the, the transition between the, you know, from first year students to, to juniors and seniors wasn't as big of a deal as it, the, the necessity to provide to both students at home and students in the classroom. Once you've, once you've mastered that, what we call a hybrid delivery, because it's, uh, it's doing both at home and in the classroom. Once you've mastered that, then then the transition or the difference between beginning students and advanced students is not such a big deal. I mean, it is a huge deal, but um, now we will say that the but college's strategy is what you're saying. It, it's an easy transition once the you know once you've gotten to that point. Once you get to that point, which is we were doing workshops all summer with people from the film department, from uh, from IT and. Uh, audio-visual, and our own uh, multimedia faculty, uh, we were workshopping all summer on how to develop strategies. Now, the college adapted a, um, a firm belief that they wanted all freshmen in all classes on campus. 
because they want the Endicott's a beautiful school. It's a traditional campus. It's one of the five most beautiful campuses in the in the country. And the college president really wanted to make sure that the freshmen had a real college experience, not a remote experience. That was that was a, a big issue that we tried to work on all summer long, as I was just saying, so that we could develop um, on per, uh, on campus in person. And this was where it required uh, much smaller classes, because when you might have normally 20 or 30 students in a classroom, we could have 8 or 10. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was a huge commitment by the college to... Um, to make sure that those small classes were still funded. In other instances, this happened in dance and in, in theater and also in ceramics, where there is the live element of the professor giving a demonstration, and their students are in two different studios simultaneously. They're, um, you know, with images projected um, and the audio projected. So that way we could get 15 or 20 students involved in a single workshop, lecture, or demonstration, or art activity, as opposed to eight. And now with something like that, where it's a hybrid classroom model like this, and you're trying to engage the students at home with the students in the classroom, I assume would you project the student at home on the screen behind the professor so everyone could see who's asking the question or who's interacting in an improv sketch? or, you know, their bit of performance that they're participating in in the activity? Yeah, you got it right on, you hit the nail on the head. So what we did was uh, during the summer, uh, we proactively purchased um, a couple of hundred of um, fairly high-end classroom microphones and and additional cameras so that, um, you know, like a webcam, but um, so that the computers that the faculty were on would not be the machine that was actually doing the filming and the audio. That was a big commitment to every classroom on campus so that every classroom ended up with two cameras and two, two microphones and the projection of the students were at home onto the screen and yes, so that everybody could hear. As a matter of fact, at the beginning of every class, we would kind of do a run through. Students at home, hey, can you hear us? Can you hear Sally in the back of the classroom? Or can someone speak up? Now, mind you, the students in the classroom and the faculty are wearing a mask. There's a whole bunch of muffled. There's a whole muffled uh, sense that's going on there. But we were doing sound checks uh, throughout to make sure that everybody was um, could be heard and could be seen. We also recorded. I'm off tangentially. Uh, we recorded. Uh, a lot of our classes when there was students who were either at home and they couldn't make it because, for example, they went back to Japan, but they were still participating in classes. And though our classes are synchronous, the, um, the young woman, uh, one of my students, Yuri from, from, uh, from Japan, uh, it was hard for her to get up for every class because it's 12 hours, it's 13 hours difference. Right. And so with something yeah. like that, was she allowed to do makeup work? Like, how does that work for somebody like her? Oh, yeah. Okay. So uh, the posture that we took across the board, and this goes from 
makeup work to, you know, not being able to attend classes. We, we are extremely flexible. In, in the end, uh, we, we made so many concessions for the students, and they really appreciated it. Um, as a matter of fact, I just got our enrollment, our application numbers for next fall. Um, they're starting to roll in. We're starting to accept for the next class. We're virtually where we were last year and where we were the year before. So unlike, I know, unlike a lot of community colleges and, um, and private colleges, uh, we're able to, to hold, and, and I think part of that is because the flexibility, the adaptability, um, I mean, you can hear, uh, I mean, even just the fact that you, you picked up on, uh, on our story is that Endicott really is a unique place. It's and, really like it. and the fact that you guys were the first ones to sit there and go, all right, let's figure out how we can put people in the classroom while trying to get everything done for the benefit of our students, um, you know, has been very unique in that sense. Cause I, I know San Diego state and I'm going to pick on them cause they're an hour and 15 minutes away from me, <laughs> uh, closed down the entire campus after the first week in the fall because there was a COVID outbreak, which I don't blame them for doing. And then requested that some of the students stay in the dormitories. And I was like, well, why the hell am I going to stay in an eight by 10 foot cell, which is really what a dormitory is and not yes. go to class? You know, so it's me and my roommate stuck in an eight by 10 cell. Uh, and that's, and that's an exaggeration in the size. I'm making it larger than what it really is. You know, and, yeah, I know. and, and I know. not be on campus in San Diego or not go to the beach, which is only 15, 20 minutes away. No. I'd rather go home back to, I don't know, let's, let's say New Mexico. You know, I, yep. I wanted to go to San Diego to be in San Diego. I know. And uh, so, you know, I'm just shaking my head. There's a lot of sadness that um, this has caused, and it certainly hurt the colleges. And, and take a look at um, at grade school and K through 12. I mean, these students and faculty and teachers, too, they're suffering. Mm -hmm. It's... um. That's why we're, we're, you know, at Endicott, I'm really, I'm so appreciative of what, what we did. I mean, it was no easy task. The president basically said, you faculty are coming back and you students are welcome back. You don't have a choice. Well, at first we were like, how are we going to do this? How are we going to do that? And then we just rolled up our sleeves and, and did it. You mentioned briefly K through 12 and... Uh, right, right. I don't know if you have small children or have children in high school, um, you know, or at least relatives that are in the those age group, nieces and nephews, et cetera. Um, but public schools seem to be struggling with uh, the online model. Yet we have, I don't know if, if you have this in New England, but I know we have this in California. We have online public schools that are fully accredited by the state. Uh why would it be that these public schools that are typically in person that are transitioning for the time period, um, not by the programs that have already been successful in K through 12 models for homeschooling kids that's accredited by mm -hmm. the state and try to reinvent the right. wheel if they're all going well, online well, anyway? I mean, it's a good observation. My, my response, oh, my, my child is actually just finished his doctoral program, so I got one and he's beyond that. But, um, but my observations are that what happened is uh, we call it pivot when we had to go pivot immediately on March 12th, March 13th. 
from um, everybody in person, and next day, Friday at 1 p.m., everybody's home. That immediate response was really difficult. At my college, unlike the publics and a lot of privates, we have the resources to train the faculty. I mean, immediately the college bought a Zoom license for every employee. So what that means is uh, without a Zoom license, if you just do the downloadable free, uh, it's limited to 40-minute presentations and a maximum number of uh, participants. So with a Zoom license, you've got unlimited, like, three-hour lectures or or productions, you know, films and and dance concerts, but also your audience can go to 300. So that's just one example of what my college has that the, the public school teachers don't. And the public school teachers are also challenged with students with learning disabilities, um, whether it be emotional or physical, uh, other kinds of um, disabilities that um, are make it difficult. And, and honestly, some of our faculty did better than others. So our strategy was to have mentorships. And in my school, in the arts, uh, with film and, and music and uh, some of our faculty were already adept at technology, so they volunteered to mentor other faculty, like in psychology or business, who are not so hands-on production-oriented. Yeah. Um, um, the the, the school teachers the that they would train them with, with the Zoom thing, and you know, buy the school districts, uh, the more affluent ones at least, would buy the Zoom, yeah. you know, the unlimited Zoom programs for for the faculty and and whatnot. So that's why. Right. It's something important to to point out. Yeah, and also, and we have we, even with a private college where I mean, I'm not saying our families are wealthy, but um, you know, there's some degree of affluence. Um, um, so, but students K through 12, remote. I mean, do they even have their own computer at home? And is the internet? If do they have an internet? And is their internet powerful enough to handle? Um, studying at home along with two or three siblings and maybe one or two parents working at home, it really taxes. Um, So, you know, those are just a few of the illustrations, the lack of support for the K through 12. Uh, The school systems are more strapped than, than let's say a private college like mine or my son's, when my son went to MIT, I mean, you know, there's no shortage of funding there. Right. Yeah. So, so your kid's not that bright. I get it. You know, (laughs) sorry, you know, uh, oh, my son has yeah. his doctorate from MIT. He's kind of dumb, but what can you do? No, I'm teasing. <laughs> Congratulations to your son on becoming a doctor. Yeah. But, I mean, that's, uh, you know, so the, one of the things that has happened because of this pandemic is it's truly illustrated the, you know, the split, the, the gap between those that have and the, those that don't have. And so and how do we fix I'm, that at this point? You know, well, I'm not a politician. Well, I don't think politicians have the answer. Um. Are we into are we into another topic here? No, but I do, I, I do I think that having resources is what's in, incredibly important by the town and the state and the feds. I think that they need to give the resources uh, to their faculty and students. I mean, uh, one one thing I'll just throw it out there: wouldn't it be great if we had universal, um, unlimited Wi-Fi and internet? Uh, you know what? Nikola Tesla was trying to get free energy and electricity to everybody. And then, uh, you know, JP Morgan sat there and go, wait a minute, I'm investing for free. I don't think so. 
So we could right, have had right. it, we could have had it a hundred years ago plus. Yep. Yeah. You're right. Um, it's these are definitely interesting times, and I think there's this is uh, going to revamp things. I know companies like Zoom and Microsoft and Apple and so many others have, have become billionaires upon billionaires, uh, you know, almost hitting trillion uh, trillionaire status uh, with right. with the remote, uh, you know, with the internet and with computers being sold more and greater access and Amazon making more money on delivery and things of that sort, um, which is going to be interesting because it seems that uh, quite a few of your students might end up working for Amazon Studios and uh, and Apple TV Plus and their production companies to send things to to the homes and, and live entertainment and pay-per-views. Um, we briefly touched on pay-per-view and allowing people to, to view them visually. Um, let's take it in once the veil is fully lifted. And I know we're going to have our social distancing. And do you think it's going to be as early as say 2022 when we could have a full, um, a full theater again? Uh, fall 2022, absolutely. Um, I'm thinking we're going to have uh, far more in-person fall 2021. So I know I'm a little bit optimistic. And it wouldn't – so our theaters, I've, I've got a black box theater that seats 100. I've got a, um, a recital hall, 250, and a larger auditorium of 500. So what we have done with a few of our performances is to have, let's say, the, the – the recital hall, the seats 250, to limiting it to 25. I mean, that's one-tenth the number. Right. But, so, how, but um, how soon will we get all 250 seats in there without masks is what I'm asking. Well, I'm not one of the epidemiologists, but I would say certainly by fall 22. That's Okay, so we're, we're on the same page. Rough estimate, fall 2022. Right, but I would say that there's going to be – I'm going to double my capacity – by by this coming by fall twenty one, okay. that I'm not going to be doing a ten percent. Uh, I'm going to be doing a, you know a twenty or twenty five percent capacity. It's going to be by steps, right. and we're we're in that fortunate position as I mentioned before about having other underwriting, not dependent on ticket sale revenue. And now I I would be remiss not to ask this before I let you go. How safe do the students feel, and how comfortable are they? Um, in the performance, in being in close quarters, say in the editing booth or in the lighting booth or, you know, the stage manager and things of that sort, when you guys are in sure. rehearsal or in performance? Okay, well, um, so I'll start off by saying that in one of our productions, there were two students who were unmasked within six feet of each other. Those two, unbeknownst to the audience, were quarantined together for 14 days. So they were already um, clean with each other. But what we've been, so that's kind of the anomaly. Uh, and we needed to tell that to the audience. We did during the production that um, the reason why so-and-so and so-and-so um, were unmasked and close is because they're buddies and they've been quarantining alone. But for the most part, what we've been doing is trying to pick uh, productions, uh, whether it be a theater or a dance production, that allows for more distance. And this, uh, so for example, when we did the Polaroid stories as our main theatrical production, all of the scenes could be filmed and were filmed with students being uh, individually. Um, 
uh, isolated, separate. And then through editing, and it wasn't like uh, we were, they were trying to fool anybody, um, but that's just the nature of Polaroid stories is there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of monologues by, by the different primary characters. And that choice was made because the script was written in such a way. So that's again how we've been, uh, trying to approach the, the performing arts productions is, well, rather than, you know, creating a Romeo and Juliet in each other's arms, we're going to have to do, you know, some other contemporary, and maybe it's a long-distance relationship between uh, me in Boston and my girlfriend in, in Hollywood. Um, you know, and so how do they relate? Um, but there are other strategies, too. For example, in the, um, in the chorus, uh, we actually uh, uh, commissioned a special kind of mask that is much more voluminous. Kind of looks like a hippopotamus mouth. But it allows for the breath and the mouth to open and to really express. And the regular, I mean, (laughs) I know my masks, they they muffle my words, let alone singing. (laughs) And then, and we've also, we developed masks, and actually we didn't, but we, we picked up on it, masks for wind instruments. Wow. Really? Yeah. Huh. So that's a trip. That that's impressive. So I, 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 I don't think I I don't think I answered your question though. I think I got off on the tangent. No, but I like the tangent because the tangent's better than the question. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, Dean, Dean, with everything that's going on, uh, it's April 2021. I want to watch a performance at Endicott College. Um, you know, I'm going through the links. I'm scrolling through. What is the big semester performance finale that I need to pay attention to to see how things have been revamped? Because you've already been through it in the fall semester. You're even more prepared for the spring semester. What do I got to look forward to? Oh, my God. What a perfect lead-in. But you know what? I'm going to have to drop the ball. Um, And I'm going to have to either send you a link because we are actually – uh, I don't have the title for our major production because the production is being created by the participants. And uh, it's a form of, uh, of live theater now that um, is, is kind of like improvisational theater. But there is uh, advanced work. There is rehearsals. They do come up with uh, the sets and the stages and everything that a regular theatrical production would have. But it's all come up with by those that are participating. And, um, and I honestly don't have the, the, the working, not even the working title for that. So the, the production is going to be where faculty and staff and students, um, write the music, do the choreography, um, decide on what the, uh, the script is going to be. And once they develop it, then they rehearse it like any other theatrical production. So this is an all new, all original, end of the semester production that we'll have to keep our our eyes and ears open to. Correct. Perfect. I'll, see, now I'm even more excited because now there's mystery and intrigue behind it. Yeah, uh, participation theater is where we're, or participatory theater. Um, it's basically a form of theater in which the audience uh, interacts with the performers and that the performers came up with the, the production in and of themselves. Right. So, um you know, it's an it's an interactive um, 
event between the participants. And yes, and it will be exciting, and hopefully it won't bomb and we'll fall flat on our face. <laughs> but for for auditions, so this is exciting. So for auditions, for the students to um, audition, they had to write their own song and perform it. And uh, what I was led to believe by the casting group was that they were outstanding and that right off the bat there are probably two or three songs that have already been written that would be perfect to include or maybe to be a kernel to work off of. Wow. Now, do you so flexibility flexibility is, is the key in going with it, having a sense of humor, uh, and having resources. I, I dig it. Dean, Dean Mark Towner, thank you so much for your time. Please let us know where we can find the performances website. So if we want to scroll through of this past semester and, and watch the replay or of upcoming performances that we'll get a chance to watch live or catch the replay once they've been uh, recorded. I'll get that to you um, within an hour or so. All right. That'd be great. Thank you so much. Uh, you know, well, thank you for your interest. Absolutely. Any websites or uh, social media that you want to plug for the school or for yourself? Well, I think the beginning point is, um, is the Endicott College's uh, primary website, and therefore we can find the arts, we can find our productions and our events calendar. But overall, I would say the best point is uh, www.endicott.edu, and Endicott is spelled E-N-D-I-C. O-T-T. Perfect. And Go ahead. And that'll get you to our front door. And then we'll welcome to, to come around. Uh, also, um, uh, anyone who's interested can actually email myself, and I'd be glad to do a follow-up. Uh, my uh, Endicott email address is mtowner at endicott.edu. It's M-T-O-W-N-E-R. At so uh, two ways to connect up with us here in New England. I love it, you know, and that's the beauty of technology. We get to connect from the West Coast to the East Coast and clear across the country and see performances that we would have never thought would have been possible at, uh, at uh, a year ago at least. That's right. Yeah. Dean Mark Towner, thank you so much for your time. Uh, I greatly appreciate this conversation. I'm looking forward to seeing what you guys at Endicott have for the audience across the country and even internationally and see what your international students come up with. Um, happy holidays to you and your family. Congratulations to your son on becoming, I assume, the second, if not third, Dr. Towner in the home. And uh, oh, Actually, <laughs> yeah, he'll be the first. So um, um, in the arts, my, my terminal degree is an MFA, not a PhD. Ah, okay. But I appreciate the, uh, the goodwill and uh, I wish you and and uh, all of your your uh, people and constituents and family, uh, a safe holiday. Thank you very much, sir. And we will definitely be in touch soon. 